Here we are continuing my uh, ever so lucky tour through America and we're joined by KMO from the C realm, C hyphen realm. And uh, he's a podcaster I've been listening to for a long time, one of the few that I listen to weekly. Uh, listeners will have heard me mention the show a number of times, but uh, KMO, uh, you've got an interesting perspective that broaches this sort of uh, challenging future we have, uh, and I've, I've listened as you've moved from a, uh, a libertarian to recovering libertarian, a, a singularitarian to someone who's now questioning that. Uh, how do you sum up your outlook and Hopefully you can slide in a bit of a definition on what a singularitarian is all about. Well, a uh, singularitarian is somebody who believes that a technological singularity is looming in the near future. Um, maybe not the near future. The notion of a singularity could take place you know, in the far future. But most of the leading singularitarians like uh, Ray Kurzweil think that maybe around the, the late 2030s or the early 2040s is when we're going to hit a moment when, and this is where the various flavors of singularitarianism diverge, you know, what exactly is the singularity? But generally, it's uh, a time when either artificial intelligence or some sort of intelligence, it could be augmented human intelligence, but there's an intelligence explosion. And uh, suddenly, there is just more cognition more intelligent analysis and research and development of the world around us going on in you know a minute than has happened in previous centuries and supposedly really strange and marvelous transformations will unfold in very short order once that becomes the reality but on a recent show you uh, had a guest on and you were talking about how uh, in the year 2000, I think, you, you, there were all these amazing robotic uh, developments and you were imagining what it would be like by 2015. And uh, summarize uh, what you've seen over that time. Not a lot. You know, people who are interested in, in artificial intelligence and robotics will tell you that there has been amazing, amazing progress in just the last few years, maybe even just the last few months, particularly with, uh, you know, sensors, robotic vision. Uh, we have... You don't see them regularly, but the technology exists for self-driving cars now. And uh, that was fairly science fiction you know, territory 15 years ago. But 15 years ago, I was seeing things like uh, Honda's Asimo robot, which was amazing. It's, it's a short but uh, humanoid robot and clearly not a guy in the suit. You can tell by looking at the hips. You know, There's just no way a human could fit in there. But this thing, it hops on one foot, or it dances, or it runs, or it walks upstairs. But in the videos that you see, I mean, these are highly choreographed and staged managed affairs. And uh, there are blooper reels where the thing falls over and can't get up. And, you know, DARPA has, uh, DARPA is a, a military, um, it's the De Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. It's... Uh, something that was uh, key in the development of the early internet. But it's, it's the military's research and development of, of high technology. And they have an annual challenge where uh, they, they have an obstacle course for robots to run through and various people who develop robots bring them. And uh, the state of the art in terms of a robot that can move through an environment without a, a lot of careful micromanaging by a human driver is really very primitive. And it's, it seems like we're no closer to having a robot now that I could say hand a $10 bill to and say, you know, run across the street and buy me, you know, a six pack of Coke and bring it back and keep the change. 
that robot couldn't get out of this apartment. You know, it couldn't navigate down that narrow hallway and fumble with the keys and, and open the door, much less do it while uh, running late with a cell phone pressed between shoulder and ear, you know, juggling five tasks like people do. Uh, so the idea that computers are about to make humans obsolete or are about to become so powerful and benevolent that they can transform the world overnight and just wash away all of our problems in the the blink of a, a magical, you know, fairy dust cyber eye. Uh, that is still the realm of fantasy, and I think it will be for a very long time. And the people who tend to be most optimistic with these visions are ones who are very um, successful in the current economic environment. And they have no patience and no intention of listening to anybody's stories about why this glorious future is not going to happen. They don't want to hear about peak oil. They don't want to hear about economic instability. They don't want to hear about limits to growth. They don't want to hear, certainly don't want to hear about, you know, contradictions of capitalism. Uh, you know, that's just nonsense talk to them. And these are the folks in Silicon Valley who think that by disrupting old industries and taking industries that used to employ tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people and replacing them with companies that employ 10 people, uh, that they're, they think they're saving the world. You know, they think they're leading the way to a glorious new future. And when I was at the height of my singularitarianism, I was living off a stock option windfall from being an early employee at Amazon.com. So it was, I've been not at the, you know, the glorious heights of like a Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates or, you know, some like a, a big venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, but I've, I've had a fair amount of money in my pocket that I got from participating in the sort of, uh, you know, sweepstakes, uh, the, the job, you know, like if you get at the right job, particularly this is in the 90s, but it's still true in, in Silicon Valley. If you get with the right startup, you get good stock options, you can work there a couple of years and cash out and it's like winning the lottery. And you think, well, I worked really hard. You know, I earned that money. No, you didn't earn that money because there's a lot of other people who are doing the exact same job, working just as hard, just as long, and their company isn't the one that, that emerged victorious, and they don't have that stock option windfall. But when you win it, it's really easy to think that you deserve it, and it's really, really easy to justify your privilege by saying, hey, I'm just a little bit ahead of the curve. You know, as is... Uh, what's his name? He wrote um, Neuromancer, uh, Gibson. William Gibson said, the future's already here. It just isn't very evenly distributed yet. And so the Ray Kurzweil's of the world like to think, yes, I have all of this money, which allows me to have this really pampered lifestyle. But technology is becoming so efficient that everybody is going to have this in very short order. And it's just not true. But the evidence that would lead somebody to the conclusion that it's not true, that we're not going in that direction where everybody is going to live the life of a, you know, a pampered billionaire, uh, it's, it's counter to their narrative and they just don't have any patience for it. But this is the religion of Silicon Valley. And it has replaced and built upon uh, Ayn Rand's objectivism, which was sort of the former religion of, of big money. And it's a really ugly, deadly combination of memes. And it, it's really, it's hard to stress how influential these ideas are among the very, very wealthy.
Well, it's that all-dominating nature that people have uh, been grown. They've grown up to believe that uh, man should dominate nature, and that uh, we have this all-encompassing potential to look after everyone. But uh, the point we we raise here on the Renegade Economist is that uh, that uh, potential is um, offset by the the ownership of nature. And uh, and location. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, looking in this uh, singularitarian world, I'd never heard of it before I started listening to your podcast some seven odd years ago, and uh, I stumbled across a uh, a subgenre of this sort of movement called the post scarcity type uh, people. Uh, how does that fit into it all? Well, most singularitarians are post scarcity believers. They believe that artificial intelligence, particularly if you can marry it up with an advanced molecular nanotechnology will deliver abundance to everybody, uh, limitlessly, without waste, without pollution. It's, you know, it's a lovely vision. Uh, There's a a gentleman who's a a very optimistic sort of guy, uh, Jeremy Rifkin, and he, he writes big fat books and he gets paid enormous amounts of money to go around and preach the gospel of how everything is getting better. And his take on it is uh, he, he, describes this sort of manufacturing process as additive rather than subtractive. You know, you don't start with a big block of marble and chip away to get your statue and have more marble is just waste on the floor than is actually in the finished statue. You build it up one atom at a time from your constituent materials and there is no waste. Again, it's a beautiful vision, but there's really not much evidence to demonstrate that this is the way that we're going to be doing things anytime soon. Yes, well, I, I was interested in the post-scarcity crew who were saying, look, we're going to have these spaceships that travel the uh, universe and uh, it's it's all going to be run on uh, energy neutral, uh, food neutral sort of um, future as you're sort of talking about. But I always wondered who would be the uh, lucky types who got to live near the windows and who would get to live near the, uh, the stinky elevator or the noisy elevator. So... Uh, Yes, always the the basic, uh, uh, you know, this overlooking of the the role of location that uh, cannot be denied wherever you are uh, in the universe. Yeah, I hear people talking about colonizing Mars. And, you know, we have a research station in Antarctica, McMurdo Station. And every year, a huge tanker ship pulls into port there with thousands of tons worth of resupply materials for them. And they have a breathable atmosphere. You can step outdoors at McMurdo Station and take a breath. It's cold, but you can breathe. There is an atmosphere. You know, you're not getting cooked by uh, hard radiation because there's no ozone layer to filter it out. If, If we cannot colonize Antarctica in a meaningful way, if we can't colonize the North Atlantic or you know, the Sahara Desert or the Gobi Desert in a meaningful way, the chances of colonizing the moon or Mars or the moons of Jupiter, that's just fantasy, really. If we're going to get out into space, it's it's going to be robotics. It's going to be artificial intelligence. There's not going to be a window seat on that spaceship you're talking about. There's not going to be a crew compartment. The ship itself will be a robot. And, you know, If you want to indulge in science fiction fantasy about humanity moving across the the galaxy, then you've got the seeds, maybe a genetic bank and some machinery for 
creating or maybe decanting a frozen embryo and uh, creating humanity anew at the destination. But in terms of carrying with this ship enough of the Earth's vital functions of providing air and clean water and soil to grow food in, uh, that's just a fantasy. And it's a fantasy that a lot of really intelligent people are very attached to. And if you tell them that it's a fantasy in just plain language, like I just did, it can make them very, very angry. But because they're intelligent, they assume that if you disagree with them, it's because you're not as intelligent as they are. And it's not that you have any sort of uh, principled or informed opposition to their fantasies. You just don't understand their arguments. So uh, if, if they can dial down the blood pressure and not just you know, project spittle at you in their anger, they tend to get very um, supercilious and condescending in, in describing to you in very simple terms why it is you don't understand their grand visions. Ah, the art of debate. <laughs> Here on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, and this week joined by KMO from the Sea Realm podcast, c-realm.com. Now, uh, I'm going to uh, contend that last point because there I was uh, at uh, LAX and reading a nice little article on uh, EM propulsion. This new development with, uh, well, it's not new, it's been around since 2000 using microwaves, colliding microwaves, I think, which uh, could well power us to Mars in 70 days. And uh, not long after I got off the, uh, I got picked up in LA, uh, we were in Laguna Hills and pulled up at the lights and there was a Ford Mustang in front of us and a Tesla S model on the other side. And my, oh my, you know, I'm not a car freak, but uh, I, I am uh, a little intrigued and uh, hoping to uh, move up to a S model or whatever their new $35,000 model is that's coming out in the next few years. But this S model, it made the Ford Mustang look like nothing. You know, it was uh, a speck on the horizon within seconds. And uh, to see that firsthand and uh, luckily video it, it was quite something. So uh, you combine that with uh, some of the stuff uh, you've had on your show, you know, uh, aquaponics, uh, permaculture principles, all these sort of things. Uh, uh, the, the Tesla Powerwall, I just uh, wonder, you know, sure, the ro robotic side of things might, might have uh, uh, let us down on some elements. Elements, uh, but there still seems to be some interesting uh, developments with robotics now where, you know, they can turn all your lights on, uh, you know, open your curtains, all those sort of basic things. Uh, uh, the Tesla can actually uh, read your calendar and um, open up the garage door and drive out to your front door. Um, if you've got a meeting at 7.50, it'll be there at uh, 7.20 or whatever the appropriate travel time is. So there are some good developments out there, but uh, I suppose when you're talking about this singularitarian uh, future, uh, perhaps we haven't quite got there. Well, we haven't, and I don't think we will. But yeah, I, I'm not saying technology is bad, and it's, I've never driven one. I've never even seen one. But as I understand it, the Tesla makes really wonderful cars. Uh, I have kids who live in Baltimore. It's on a good day, a three and a half hour drive from here. On a bad day, it's a six or seven hour drive from here. There's not a Tesla on the road that I can go and get into here in New York City 
drive to Baltimore, pick up my kids, and bring them back here in a day, which I can do in my 1991 Ford Ranger. Uh, they just don't have that kind of range. If you want to drive around, you know, from your expensive digs in, uh, in Silicon Valley to the office and then back again, and you're only covering 50 miles total, sure, you can do that. But the, the Tesla, as, as marvelous a piece of engineering as it is, and I'm not, I'm not, I have nothing bad to say about it, it hasn't even reached the level in terms of just regular old performance of moving somebody from one place to another as my 20-year-old truck out on the street. Hmm, well, I'm interested to see these developments in paint-on PV solar technology. There's some good developments there in Australia, let alone what's happening around the world. So, yeah, I have hope that uh, that will um, eventuate. But what I'm concerned about are those sort of uh, uh, future-thinking entrepreneurs who are looking to lock up some of this technology so it deters uh, this potential that can eventuate so uh, yeah it's 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 interesting to think in this sort of futurist level uh, what sort of futurists are you looking at that mesh a bit of uh, uh, nature with nurture permaculturalists <laughs> yeah really that's that's it in a in a word permaculturalists and uh, what are you seeing in that sort of field that's really exciting you at the moment? You know, developments aren't coming hard and fast uh, in permaculture like they do out of Silicon Valley. But just the idea and the, the various methodologies and techniques that people are perfecting over seasons and over decades of living well, but not depending on a lot of uh, mechanical inputs, a lot of technology, a lot of high energy inputs, just using the sun and the water and soil and the uh, genetic bounty that you know we have access to to create a good living. You, you mentioned uh, paint on photovoltaics. Uh, for a very long time, the Seaborn podcast was almost exclusively about peak oil and about the uh, the terrible disaster that would befall civilization when peak oil really hit. I've certainly backed away from those apocalyptic visions, but uh, certain things about peak oil theory are still very, very worth knowing and very worth repeating. And one of them is that it's, it's not an energy crisis per se, it's a liquid fuels crisis. The universe is full of energy that we can harness, but the, the concentrated, highly concentrated energy of fossil fuels is what allows us to have a global civilization, a global economy, to have to ship things across the ocean so that they can be polished and shipped back or ship something to a different country to be combined with some other materials to be shipped to a third place to be, you know, to have a label put on it, to be shipped to another continent, to be put on a shelf for sale. That is made possible by fossil fuels and no amount of paint on photovoltaics is going to replicate that. Well, hopefully we have a, a true cost economics type future where there would be some sort of carbon tax. But uh, I, I wonder, even if we did have a carbon tax and we did have uh, these paint-on solar cells on these ships with uh, perhaps some of these giant parachute sails that are starting to happen on the big ocean liners, uh, whether there would still be the desire to ship all these products from one place to another to uh, uh, build up the, this product. And hopefully that sort of uh, ridiculous waste of uh, time and 
and resources w- would finish. But uh, yeah, you, you kind of uh, scratch your head having seen in Australia the carbon tax be established and uh, then there'd be such a, a strenuous uh, debate about it where uh, uh, the vested interests of the mining industry threatened some $20 million campaign in what they called a marginal seats campaign. So they were going to uh, run a whole pile of high-profile sports stars and the like in these seats to uh, basically wrestle away the power base from uh, both parties who had marginal seats, particularly Labor who was in government and was supporting uh, this carbon tax. So uh, here in America, what are some of the strategies that the the powers that be use. Um, Admittedly, you've got single pass the post. And as I was reminded, um, 80% of uh, uh, sitting members are returned at each election. Uh, What sort of danger is there that uh, some serious long-term thinking uh, seeps into the democratic process? That doesn't seem to be much of a danger at this point. Uh, We have some very, very wealthy people. You know, Back when Bill Clinton was the president of the United States and he was getting ready to pass that, uh, that mantle on to Al Gore, some Republicans tried to uh, suggest that Al Gore was a traitor because he had taken money that might have originated in China for his campaign. And since that time, any restrictions on campaign finance that may have been in place back in those days, you know, those Paleolithic days, have been completely removed to the point where, you know, now campaigns are funded by these things called super PACs or political action committees, where enormous amounts of money are aggregated and then spent on behalf of the candidate, not by his actual campaign, but by this sort of sister organization which shares the same goal of getting this person elected, but they're not actually affiliated with them. And the amount of money that they spend is unbelievable and there is no accountability as to where it comes from at all. And there have been numerous Supreme Court decisions where the court has basically said, uh, and in fact, Chief Justice Roberts wrote a, a, a decision basically saying, there's nothing wrong with the way elections are funded in this country and Congress has no business crafting any legislation to supposedly fix the problem of wealthy people expecting to have some influence for having funded these campaigns so lavishly. The system is not broken, it doesn't need fixing, and you've got no business trying to fix it, is the opinion of the highest court in this land. So uh, if if the danger of long-term thinking is really uh, something that we need to worry about, it's going to stem from campaign finance reform, and that seems really, really unlikely and far away at this point. One person I wish lived an hour away from me is uh, uh, the, the almighty Lawrence Lessig, who... Who I... might run for president. Yes, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, there is scuttlebutt, rumor, uh, talk of his getting into the race and competing with Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders for the Democratic nomination. Wow, gee, that'd be a, a, a breath of fresh air, wouldn't it, though? Bernie Sanders is uh, making some good noises, but uh, to have that sort of uh, intellectual uh, clout that Lawrence Lessig does, having been the, 
the godfather of the Creative Commons licensing system that allows people to put their photos on websites such as Flickr and uh, enable people to use them in a non-commercial manner. That's certainly been uh, such a, a strong development for the, the Creative Commons. But uh, yeah, what, what sort of campaign finance reform has he been advocating? Is someone I wish I could keep up with. I don't know the specifics of what he's proposing, but everybody should watch his TED Talk where he talks about the, the Larry election. You know, his name is, is Lawrence. Larry is a nickname for Lawrence. And uh, the number of people in the United States who fund campaigns is roughly equal to the number of people named Larry. So before you can get into the general election, you have to win the Larry election. You have to win the favor or present yourself as a viable candidate to those few people in the United States who actually put put out the money that funds the campaigns. And so before anybody gets anywhere near the general public's ballot, they have to appeal to these most special of special interests. And uh, as long as that is the case, every everybody who's on the ballot that you, well, not you, because you don't live here, but Olga and I get to look at and vote on, uh, every single one of those people has been vetted by the money and power elite. Yes, well, uh, that is the, the sad indictment of our, our democratic system. And yeah, it, it just staggers me that uh, single pass the post voting system here uh, and in Canada and in in London, in the UK as well. So, uh, you know, these so-called uh, bastions of freedom have such a, a limited enabler of public opinion and diversity. And so uh, I often say that uh, uh, politicians have to pawn their policies to pay for advertising on what was once known as the public airwaves. So that's what I'm hoping to see is that uh, more of our uh, media moguls are encouraged to provide free advertising for each political party based on uh, some sort of formula, whether that be the number of members or whatnot. I'm sure there need to be a lot of debate on figuring out the formula so it's not corruptible. But uh, yeah, let's hope that some, uh, some future thinking on, on democratic practices really steps up because it's, it's hard having seen Obama do what he's done. And obviously he's got a good heart somewhere in there. But uh, the more you, you find out about these sort of people, the, the more you realize it's perhaps a bit of a, a charade. There's an episode, if you've listened to the Sea Rome podcast for many years, you know that I, I always have a Star Trek reference. So from the original series, there's an episode where the, uh, the Enterprise goes to a planet and there you have two groups of, of savages. You've got the Yangs and the Combs. And it just happens that this is an exact duplicate of Earth and that there was an atomic war and that the people left over don't really understand their own history. So the Yangs are the Yankees or the Americans and the Combs were the communists or the, the Soviets and the Chinese. And um, the, the Yangs, they have a few scraps of their history left that they worship, even though they don't understand. And so there's a, a Yang in a jail cell next to Kirk and Spock and Kirk and Spock are trying to escape. And Kirk says something to the effect of, you know, Spock, we really have to, to get with it if we're going to regain our freedom. And the guy in the next cell says, freedom. It is our worship word. You will not speak it. And they, they do escape, and they end up going back to the Yang's uh, uh, home base, and they've got 
the, um, the preamble to the Constitution that they have, just a scrap of, and they start to read it, but they're just reading it phonetically. They don't understand the words at all, and Kirk steps up, and he half reads it and half recites it from memory, and, you know, patriotic music plays, and he's saying, you don't even understand these words that you worship. They have meaning. And we're very much in, in that situation now, where freedom, and particularly on the right, the word liberty, are used as these totemic words. These are words to, to conjure with. These are words to inspire group cohesion. But the actual meaning of the word is, is so tangential to its usage. It is so far removed from the sentences that it's embedded in and the purposes to which it is employed. Uh, it's, you know, Star Trek really hit the nail on the head with, with that very uh, prescient prediction of, you know, how we would come to treat these words that are supposed to be the foundation of our political system. Well, KMO, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR's Renegade Economists, broadcasting out of Melbourne, Australia. Or Brooklyn, New York, in this case.